Today, this is John Murphy. It's my pleasure to welcome a group of four scientists who have one very common interest, and that is the development and application of degradable metallics as it might pertain to various medical applications. So, it's my pleasure to welcome this team to this podcast today, and let me begin with the introduction. So, the first guest is Dr. Frank Vitter, who is an associate professor of orthopedics and manager of implant immunology at the Hanover Medical School in Germany. Secondly, we have Dr. Diego Montavani, who is director of the laboratories at the University of Laval. Thirdly, it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Prashant Kumta. Dr. Kumta is with the Swanson School of Engineering at the University of Pittsburgh. And finally, Dr. Charles Sphere, who is also with the University of Pittsburgh in the Department of Oral Medicine and Pathology. Gentlemen, it's a pleasure to have you with us at Regenerative Medicine today. So let me begin by asking Dr. Vitta to very briefly introduce the vision that this team has in terms of degradable metallics for various medical applications. What is this concept and how do you propose to use it? Biodegradable metals are a new type of biodegradable or temporary implant materials. So a new type because it serves until the tissue is healed for a temporary time and then it should disappear like all the other biodegradable metals like polymers or calcium phosphates. But here we have metals that intentionally for many years should have not been made like they are corroding, right? So biodegradable metals actually are intended to corrode in vivo and that's the principle of its dissolution. So here we actually have biodegradable metals in vivo. So let me just step back for a second. As I understand the current standard of care, a physician will use some metallic plates, for example, to help mend uh, broken bones. While they provide structural support during the healing process, they remain in place. They're typically titanium metallics, as I understand it. And as a result, after the healing process is completed, then there's this metal which has side effects. Is that a correct description of the current state of the art? Correct. Permanent implant materials for osteothensis, well, bone fixation, right now, as you said, are made of titanium. And after the fracture or the bone is healed, you have to remove them in case they are getting loose or they get infected or the patient has any other type of pain or so. In many cases, it would be beneficial for the patient to have only one operation, another second one, to remove the implant. So a biodegradable implant, especially a strong one made of a metal, would be very beneficial for the patient. In a normal corrosion process, the degradation products would be undesirable to have in the body. I assume you have a different strategy. Right. Here we have biocompatible corrosion products. So the, the way how the implant is disintegrating is a corrosion process. In the end, you have corrosion products which are biocompatible and which can dissolve and can be eliminated via the kidneys from the body very quickly. Very interesting. So as we explore this area some more, 
Let me ask Dr. Mondavanti about his particular interest in the application of how you're applying these technologies. My interest in these fields are to work on a cardiovascular application, mainly for degradable metals and to fill the, the lack present in some clinical application, for example, especially for a pediatric application. Can you imagine a children, three, five years old, with a congenital heart disease, need some biomaterials like stents or a different kind of devices, cannot be of the same shape that the one used for adult. So you expect that these materials remain in place only six, eight months, up to one year, and then dissolve. In that context, the idea of degradable metals is very, very challenging and represents a tremendous potential. So as I understand the current stenting process, a stent provides some functional outcome in the short term and can provide complications in the long term. The approach that you're pursuing, you can make the stent disappear at an appropriate time. Is that correct? Yes. Actually, our dream is uh, to be able to provide clinician devices that are programmed to completely dissolve without leaving any toxic effect or any trace in the body after a period of time uh, ranging from 6 months to 18 months. You also just answered another question I had. You expect to be able to dial in the time that this stent is in place before it deteriorates. Actually, this is the real challenge. The real challenge is that uh, in uh, Every biomaterials handbook, you can read clearly that if a metal is used in the body, this metal should be corrosion-resistant. And in this field, we completely think different. We want metals who degrade in the body. And this is unconventional. And being unconventional requires a different way of thinking and to proceed. There are tons of literature in the scientific world concerning how to prevent corrosion but uh, never how to stimulate corrosion and being that this corrosion is uh, homogeneous and uh, programmed. So the ability to program metals to be completely released or completely dissolved into the body in a certain time is a big scientific and engineering challenge. So one of the questions that comes to my mind is that you have a, a structure, whether it's a stent or whatever it might be, that has certain structural capabilities at the time it's implanted. And the ultimate outcome is no stent at all. So you go through this degradation process. Are there possibilities of what I'll call fragments, for example, from this deteriorating stent causing other problems? This is a very interesting question. Hanepli, I do not have a, a right and precise answer for you, but uh, the main idea who drives our works is to be able to make the metals degrading, let's say, layers by layers. Theoretically, could be very interesting to have atomic layer by atomic layers. So you do not have any effects. For example, in cardiovascular fits, you cannot induce a thrombosis somewhere in the body. So... Um, this is a major problem, and this is not yet solved. It's not easy to have a metal so degrade really homogeneously. So one of the things we should stress to our listeners is that this is a, a work in progress. While it has some fine applications, there's some very fundamental studies with this, I presume. 
This is very, very new. It's uh, 10 years that the first clinician implanted uh, just uh, like a very preclinical trial with some of the gradable metals. I always say to my students, uh, we are uh, like uh, at the time of Newton when the apple just uh, fall down on his head. And uh, so we are thinking, is it possible or not? The question is not yet uh, determined. Is, uh, we do not have a precise uh, answer, but it requires a, a different way of thinking and open new doors and open new challenges and for the benefit of the society in clinical needs. As I look at this work and others, I think about both the challenges and the opportunities that it presents, and uh, I have to commend you and your colleagues for this road that you've set on to uh, accomplish some very interesting outcomes. So, Dr. Vid, I seem to recall that you recently authored a paper that talks about the historical perspective of this. Can you share some of that with us, please? Yes, the first time magnesium actually has been used as a biodegradable implant in humans has been in 1878 by an American physician. He used a wire of magnesium usually used for the flashlight from photography to actually stop a bleeding vessel. And this is the first time we found in literature that magnesium actually has been used as a biodegradable implant material. Then there is a bunch of literature from the 19th century, the first years during the wars, the First and Second War. But after that, it really disappeared. This technology has been actually vanished after the stainless steel has been introduced as an implant material. So after that time, until now, or 10 years back, this technology has been not investigated by anyone. It seems to me that up to the point that you and your colleagues have started to investigate this field, that the, the focus has been short-term and not long-term. And what I mean by that is a physician who is an orthopedic surgeon, as an example, wants to mend a broken bone or bones, and that was the short-term focus. Whereas, as we said before, there were potential longer-term consequences, but the focus was on fixing the problem and dealing with the secondary effects later. What you and your team have set out to do is to not only fix the short-term problem, but avoid the long-term problems. And uh, I have to commend you for that. Dr. Vida, what's the experience with humans in terms of magnesium implants at this point? At this point, we just have prototypes. We're not in humans with our new alloys, the new designs, the new ideas we have. But there are proofs from old literature around 1930s that physicians implanted large-volume implants, bone screws, in wounded soldiers. They survived, the wound got healed, the bone got healed, and it was not harming the people. But at that time, they couldn't control the corrosion very well. And that is the reason why we are now investigating new alloys and new designs that try to come over this fast corrosion. Dr. Kumta, I know that some of this work is being done under a NSF Engineering Research Center. Can you give us a little bit of insight into that program, please? The NSF Engineering Research Center is one of the flagship centers that is funded by the engineering division of the National Science Foundation, and it's one of the most prestigious 
as they call it, is one of the crown jewels. We at the University of Pittsburgh were quite fortunate to be part of this team effort that was led by North Carolina A&T and partnered with the University of Cincinnati. This center was funded in 2008, and we have the privilege to work with Dr. Frank Witter from Germany, and as a collaborative effort, one of the major goals of this ERC is to develop uh, degradable magnesium-based alloys. The focus is uh, to develop these alloys and try to make them degrade in a controlled fashion, uh, as well as ensure that the byproducts of the degradation or corrosion does not lead to any toxic effects. And our goal is to look at several devices. We are focusing on orthopedic and craniofacial application. We are also looking at cardiovascular application. And another intriguing concept is uh, embedded sensors. So we have these three main goals that we are working on. It's a very challenging task, uh, but it's a 10-year center. We just made through our first initial renewal, which happened last year. So we hope that we can fulfill the goal, which is at the end of the 10 year, we should come up with various products. In terms of the ERC, I know that your website has a lot more details on than we can go into in this podcast, and we will post on the podcast website the web address for the ERC. So if listeners are interested in further exploring the all these exciting areas that will be able to do that. So, Dr. Kumta, I know that one of your particular interests is craniofacial biometallics. Can you tell us a little bit about that, please? It's been wonderful working in this area, you know, with strong collaboration with my colleague, Dr. Charles Sphere at the Dental School. Our goal is to essentially come up with various alloy compositions which can degrade in a controlled fashion. But we are also looking at devices that can be used for healing bone. If you look at fixation plates for bone healing, in today's devices that are currently available, these are non-degradable, which means even though healing is achieved, there is a need for a second surgery to remove the plate. So by having a biodegradable metallic-based fixation plate or screws, we hope that we can get the healing and we don't have to go for a second surgery. So this is one area where we are working on in terms of developing alloys and then machining it and making the product. So one of the questions that occurs to me is that I'm sure that body chemistry varies from patient to patient. How sensitive is that in terms of the outcome that you seek for a defined period it takes for this material to deteriorate? Yes, that's a very important question. And as we said, when we are trying to control the corrosion products, or control the corrosion reaction, it's essential that the whole idea which goes into alloy design, which includes using various alloying elements that is normally done so that you can control the reactive chemistry of the metal when it comes in contact with the physiological solution. While we control this reaction, it's important for us to evaluate the effect of each of the ions that are released inside the body, and that is also one of the important goals of the ERC, and we even have a team called the toxicity team, which essentially assesses the toxicity of all the ions that are coming out. And the concept is that the soluble products are excreted through the kidney and the urine, but we need to evaluate what happens if these elements are released or these ions are released in large amounts and are concentrated at a given point, at a given site, 
And that's essentially what we are looking at in terms of trying to see if there is a localized increase at a certain concentration of a certain specific iron and what kind of effect it can have. So our hope is that by having a controlled corrosion reaction, we can control the amount that is released so that it is way below the toxic level. And our hope is that over a long period of time for the lifespan of the device in the body, we can achieve this so that we can get a sustained release of the ions below the level that is harmful. Sounds like a neat plan, and I hope the outcome is according to plan. So, Dr. Sphere, I think there's a couple of points I'd like you to address. One is that just in amongst these four guests that we have here, there's various skill sets and core competencies. I assume this is a multidisciplinary effort. And then secondly, perhaps you can share a little bit about one of your particular interests, which are dental applications. I've been very fortunate to actually, as a clinician, to collaborate with really wonderful colleagues, and actually that collaboration spans across countries and borders. As, as you can see from the collection of people here, yeah, from Germany, from Canada, from the U.S., I mean, this actually to come up with a therapy, I think one lab or one group in this day and age is very difficult to come up with a viable therapy that the clinician can use. And so having these collaborations, having these interaction with various scientists is really, really pushing the field forward. And, and as Dr. Vidi mentioned, that for some time it kind of died, and now it's being revived. And this whole momentum, if you want to call it, is actually wonderful to see. And the clinical application, the potential, is really phenomenal. It's, it's really wonderful to have these load-bearing, these mechanically stable materials that you can implant in a patient that they can use the functionality right away and over time they do degrade and being replaced by the body own tissue regardless where you implant it bone teeth any stents or things like that so tell me more about how you would use this in a dental application dentistry interestingly enough is very focused on a lot of materials because we use a lot of materials in dental restorations and dental prosthesis. We use quite a bit of materials. And, and so usually in the dental area, we try to be at the forefront of the material aspect of things. So this is something we're always tuned into. We're always looking for new things. And this resorbable metal, the application are tremendous from, I mean, you can even dream if you want. I mean, it's, it's, you can dream as you implant a metallic tooth and eventually it will transform itself from a metal to a tooth structure that you can build a crown on it as a natural tooth. I mean, this is way out there. But for the immediate applications, you have bone augmentations that's being done routinely in the dental area. You have periodontal disease that could actually be addressed by this technology. I can name plenty in oral maxillofacial surgeries, for example, jaw or craniofacial plates, fixation screws, similar to orthopedics, basically. We see a lot of clinical potential in the dental and craniofacial areas. Very interesting. Dr. Vida, I understand that there's a forum where you and other scientists and engineers who are investigating this area will be meeting to share results. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, Diego Mantovani and myself, we founded the Symposium on Biodegradable Metals in 2009. And since then, we have this as an annual event. And you're more than welcome to join us and visit our website. It's www.biodegradablemetals.org. And we've been lucky to publish right now two special issues with, um, in Acta Biomaterialia as well as in Material Science and Engineering, Pod B. 
So if you would like to know more about that field, contact us or read through these special issues. When is the next conference? The next conference is this year in Italy, a very nice place called Maritia. It's a little bit on the south, a resort place, beautiful. We will expect something like 140 participants from all over the world, from New Zealand, South Korea, China, U.S., Canada, Europe. So this conference is August 27th to September 1st. And it's, as I said, a beautiful resort place. We have a very nice welcoming party as well as people around there and we have a lot of good signs there. Very good. Gentlemen, I'd like to thank you for joining us to share with us your vision and the progress you've made and what I think we need to recognize is a very important area. Uh, It's clearly a a long-term study but I think the funding mechanism that you have through the ERC provides an opportunity to make some significant progress. I encourage our listeners to uh, visit the ERC website and the conference website that Dr. Villa just introduced to us. Uh, as we conclude this podcast, I'd remind our listeners that we welcome suggestions at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine that sponsors this podcast series. Until we meet again with another interesting interview, best wishes to our listeners. Thank you.